0: If you have a Bible this morning, take it out. If you did not bring one with you, there's one underneath your seat or in the seat in front of you. Our passage is John chapter 1. Hunter read the entire prologue earlier, uh, which I asked him to do. We are going to look at verse 6 to verse 13. Last week we looked at verse 1 to 5. This morning 6 to 13. Next week will be 14 to 18. So three weeks on John's Prologue. While you find that passage, while you get your notes out, while you get settled, I would like you to think about your favorite Bible hero. Who is your favorite Bible hero? I grew up at Trinity Baptist Church in Amarillo, Texas. I matriculated through every class from the bed babies all the way up through Young adult classes, and several times I remember Sunday school teachers asking us, Who is your favorite Bible hero? And I remember very clearly, uh, not exactly the grade, but I remember the room that we were in during Sunday school. Had to be second, third, fourth grade, something like that. The teacher said, I want you to draw a picture of your favorite Bible hero. And we're going to put these up on the wall. It was sort of like, opening day activity, uh, first day of Sunday school type thing. And so there I was thinking, who, what am I going to put down? What am I going to draw? And I went with Noah, right? The boat and the animals and all that. I thought, this is pretty good. I can draw a picture of that. And so then we had to go around and say who our favorite Bible hero was, and they were going to tack him up on the wall, and they were going to stay there the whole year. And about three kids in, before it got to me, somebody drew a picture of Jesus. Jesus. And I thought, you know, I probably should have gone with Jesus if we're talking about favorite Bible hero. And I remember the feeling in my stomach of thinking, it's coming to me and I'm going to have to hold up Noah. And Noah, I'm pretty sure, is not as good as Jesus. And I remember thinking, it's going to be on the wall all year long. Every time I walk into this Sunday school class, there's going to be a reminder. The, the smart kids, the spiritual kids, went with Jesus and the dumb kids, Drew the animals in the boat. So take Jesus out of it just for a moment. That's a dangerous thing in church, but just for a second. Jesus off the table, your favorite Bible hero. Some of you, I bet, would go Old Testament, right? If Jesus off the table, some of you would say, hey, Noah, I'm right there with you. Some of you would say Moses. I love the story of Moses or the story of David, or maybe you'd pick one of the prophets, or maybe you'd pick somebody like Hannah who has a short story but a really, really beautiful story in the Old Testament. So some of you would go Old Testament. Some of you would go New Testament. And you would say, wow, Mary, Mother of Jesus, would be high up on my list. Or Peter or Paul or somebody from the New Testament. Whatever your list would look like, whatever your top ten or five or three would be, i got to think John the Baptist should be in the discussion. Of all the people you could talk about, from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, all the Bible heroes not named Jesus, I think you've got to give serious consideration to John. In fact, Jesus did. At one point, he said there's not been anyone greater than John. John was a great, great man. And John is, in effect, what we're going to talk about this morning in this middle part of the prologue. A fascinating person, if you could just sit down and talk. If you could ask him a few questions, if you could sit down over lunch and just look this guy in the face and talk to him about what he did, about his experience as a follower of the Lord and his relationship with Jesus. So let's talk about John the Baptist just a little bit. The name John, quote unquote John, in the Gospel of John, in the fourth gospel, it always refers to John the Baptist, never to John the Apostle the man who wrote the gospel that we're reading. Does that make sense? When you're reading the fourth gospel and you see the name John, we're talking about John the Baptist. right? He never calls him John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He always just calls him John. And the John who wrote the book... John, who was one of the twelve apostles, he puts himself in the story at a couple of places. But he doesn't ever call himself John. He doesn't ever refer to himself by name. Typically what he does is he says, this is the apostle Jesus loved. And some people look at that and say, well, he didn't want to name himself by name. Some people look at that and say he didn't want to make himself the center of the story. Some say he didn't want the confusion with John the Baptist. And some say he had a little bit of an ego, and he thought he was sort of had this special relationship with Jesus that set him apart. The point is, John in this gospel is always John the Baptist. Here's a remarkable thing I just want you to think about. In each of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John the Baptist shows up early and often. He's not a side character. He's not supporting cast. He plays a major role in each of them. When you open the New Testament and you look at the Gospel of Matthew, you start off with the genealogy, and then you read the Christmas story, and as soon as you get through those two things, immediately you meet John the Baptist. When you go to the second Gospel, the Gospel according to Mark, Mark skips the genealogy. He skips the Christmas story. He passes on all the preliminaries, and he just says, I need to tell you about a guy named John. He just jumps right in with John the Baptist. Then you go to Luke. Luke starts off, and he says, here's how I did my research. Here's who I've interviewed. Here's how I've put this gospel together and why I've done it. And let me tell you about the birth of a baby, not Jesus, but John. John the Baptist. He starts with John the Baptist. And then you come to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, and you start with this big picture cosmic prologue talking about the word and creation and things at the beginning. And six verses in, you just get six verses into this big cosmic view of the universe, and John, the author, says to us, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And there he is, right at the beginning of each of these Gospels, playing a major role in the story. He was, one Bible scholar uh, describes him this way, he was the pivot, quote-unquote pivot, of biblical history. In a sense, the last of the Old Covenant. The last of the Moseses, and Davids, and Elijahs, and Isaiahs. The last one pointing us forward, and in, in a sense, he's the first of the New Covenant. He's the first one to be able, not just to say, the Messiah is coming, but to be able to point to him in the flesh and say, that's him. He's the one. He's the pivot where the whole thing hinges. You understand his last name was not Baptist. That pains me to say that, but... His name was not on the membership roll at First Baptist Jerusalem. Every now and then you find a wonky Baptist scholar who says Baptists have been around forever and John was the first one and we go back to him. That's silliness. He was not, he was not a Baptist. Literally what the New Testament calls him is John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer. John the guy who went around dunking people in water. Literally is what it means. Right? What a nickname. John, which one are you talking about? There's lots of Johns. Oh, you know, the guy that dunked people in the water all the time. The guy who told people to repent of their sins, and when they repented of their sins, he baptized them in water as sort of this picture of the old person dying and the new person being alive and ready to follow the Messiah. He is John the baptizer, and he baptized Jesus. I throw that in here because John the author of this gospel, never actually tells us that story. He talks about Jesus. He talks about John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He talks about John the Baptizer baptizing people, but he never actually tells us the part where Jesus comes and he's baptized by John. John thought it was ridiculous. right? Jesus shows up and he says, I want you to baptize me. And John basically says, this is West Texas paraphrase, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'm telling people to repent of their sins and be baptized. Why in the world would I baptize you? You have no sin to repent of. You're the Messiah. You should be baptizing me. You've got this completely backwards. And you can look in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as they tell the story. Jesus says to him, I need you to do it. I want you to do it to fulfill all righteousness. And John consents, and he baptizes him. The big idea of this passage it doesn't have to do with John's nickname as the baptizer. It really doesn't have to do with uh, you know, him arguing with Jesus in the waters of the Jordan River. Here's the big idea of our passage this morning. God sent John the Baptist as a witness about Jesus. God sent John to be a witness about Jesus. And the way that we phrase that is intentional. We did not make John the subject. Right? God is the subject. God's the one taking action here. It's not about John. There's a clue for you right here out of the gate. We're talking about John, but John's life really wasn't about John at all. God was the one at work. God was the one who sent him, and his job was to be a witness about Jesus. So look in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Let's just read again verse 6 to verse 13, the verses we're going to talk about this morning. Word of God says this, John 1, 6. Lord, as we come to your word, we want to be humble before your word. And we want to look at these verses. We want to hear these verses. We want to think about these verses. Father, we want to understand what they mean. We want to be wise in applying them to our lives. And, Father, we want to be changed people as a result of having an encounter with your word. It's living and it's active and it's as sharp as a two-edged sword Father, we pray that your word would cut us to the heart this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every day you make a lot of decisions. Some days you may feel overwhelmed with the number of decisions that you have to make, but every day you make a lot of decisions. And many of those decisions you don't really even think about. You just make them almost automatically. Uh, You made the decision this morning to get up. To get up on time or to get up late or to get up early when the alarm went off or the sun went up or the kids came running in the room or whatever it was, you had a decision to make. You had a decision to make about what you would wear. What am I going to wear to church? You have decisions to make today about what you're going to eat. That's the pressing decision on some of your minds. Where are we going to eat? How much am I going to eat? What time are we going to eat? Who are we going to eat with? We make lots of decisions about things like that. You have decisions today about where in Odessa you're going to risk your life. Are you going to choose 42nd Street or are you going to go with university? Where do you want to put your life on the line? That's a decision to make and it might be an important one. So you make lots of decisions every day. A lot of the decisions you make are very small, very insignificant, right? Sometimes you make a very seemingly small, insignificant decision and then lo and behold, much to your surprise, you realize that was actually a big decision had a major impact on my life. Maybe as you look back on your life, you can look at a pattern of very small decisions that you've made over time. And looking back, you can say, you know, those were insignificant, small. They didn't seem like a big deal then, but they piled up through the years and they turned out to be a big decision. Sometimes in your life and in my life, you're faced with a decision that really is a biggie and you know it. And going into it, you realize there's consequences here, right? If I do this, this is what is probably going to happen. If I do this, I might, I might have to give this up. You, you realize this, this big whopper of a decision is laid on your plate. And you know there's going to be a consequence either way. I want you to understand that when John the Baptist walked around 2,000 years ago and he preached out in the wilderness... He was calling people to make a decision. And in John's mind, this is the biggest decision that you could ever make. It was life-changing and life-altering in every way. So much so that the symbol that went along with that decision was a symbol of you dying under the water and being raised to a new way of life. What a tragedy that in the United States and many of our churches... The decision to follow Jesus is not seen as life-altering. For most of us, we see it as eternity-altering. Right? I've punched my ticket. I've said the prayer. I got saved. Now I know that when I die, I get to go to heaven. And we say, my eternity has been changed. It's big. That's good. But we fail to see it as life-altering now. And I promise you that when John the Baptist called people to repentance, he was calling people to the biggest, most important, most weighty, most life-altering decision that he ever thought would be set before them. Will you repent of your sin? Will you turn from your sin? And will you trust in the Messiah? We're going to talk about John this morning. We're going to talk about his ministry. And I just want you to see a couple of things about John Himself. What do we learn about the ministry of John the Baptist? Number one, he was a man, and he was sent by God. I don't want to belabor the point we already talked about in the big idea, but I want you to understand the, the importance of this. He was a man, and he was sent by God. If you've got your Bible open, I want you to look at the passage we looked at last week in our passage this morning. I want you to see the contrast here, because John, the author of this gospel, is trying to show you that Jesus, the Word, is not like John, the man. Look what he says in the opening verses. The Word existed in the beginning. In the beginning, the Word was there. And he was with God. He was there, present with the Father. The Word was with the Father. And he was the Father. He was God. He was part of the deity, the, the, the Trinitarian Godhead. He's talking about all these mysterious, amazing things we looked at last week. He's the Creator. He says right here in verse 3, all things were made through him, through the word. He created everything that exists. He's painting this big picture of who the word is. And then he comes to verse 6 and he wants to introduce us to John. And he says, let me tell you about a man. A man, a human being, just like you, in every way. Born with a sinful fallen nature. When he fell down, he scraped his knee. He, he got the sniffles and the allergies. He had to go to sleep. He had to wake up. He had responsibilities. He was a man. There's this contrast of the eternal cosmic creating word and set right next to it a man sent from God. His name was John. When people said John, he turned around. Right? This is not a myth, it's not a fable. It's not some kind of fairy tale that we we talk about sort of made-up stories to make ourselves feel better about spiritual things. This is a real man in history, a human being, and his name was John. And I just want you to think about the contrast that's being painted here. The God who in the beginning created every last square inch of the universe, the Word, in the beginning was the Word. And everything that is in existence, everything that's been created, came into existence through him. He created all of it. Right? That God sent a man, a human. You might expect him to send a, an angel or a cherubim or the host of heaven or some mighty delegation. And instead he sends a man, a human being. The eternal creating word certainly did not need John the Baptist to do anything for him. But this is the way God works in the world. You've got to understand this. He is pleased to send men, women, boys, girls to carry out his will in the world. He could with the snap of his finger just make whatever he wanted to be, be. And yet he chooses to send a man. And he sends John. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 28. I want you to understand that you have been sent. Jesus says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go. I'm sending you. I'm not sending the angels on mission trips. The cherubim are not signed up to go to Kenya in a few weeks. They're not going. I'm not sending the host of heaven to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You say, oh, but that would be so great. It would be dramatic. It would be quick. It would be easy. And Jesus says, I'm sending you. God sent John, and I'm sending you. You say, I'm inadequate for the task. So was John. And God sent him, and he was pleased to speak through this man. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been sent. You may not have been sent with the exact same ministry that John the Baptist was sent with, but you have been sent. To be a Christian is to be one who has been sent. Either you've been sent across the street or you've been sent around the world, but all of us fall into this category. John 1, God sent a man named John. He was sent by God, and we have the same ministry. We have the same calling. We have the same sending On our lives. To go. Does God need us to go? Absolutely not. In his wisdom and in his sovereignty and in his plans, has he been pleased to use human beings? Yes. We've been sent. Secondly, John was a witness about Jesus. He was a witness. Look at verse 7. It says he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Some of your translations say that he came as a witness to testify about the light. John, the, the author of the gospel, is using language right out of the courtroom, legal terminology. And he's saying, John, this man sent by God was sent to be a witness. What's the job of a witness in a court of law? The job of a witness is to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Open your mouth and tell the people in the room what you know. It's not the job of the witness to be convincing. I know we watch lawyer movies and legal movies and they coach the witness and they do all these sorts of things. And you've got to convince them. You've got to get them with your testimony. But really, if you just sort of boil it down, the job of the witness isn't to convince anyone. The job of the witness is to speak the truth. The lawyer's job is to be convincing. The witness just opens his mouth or her mouth and says, this is what I know to be true. The job of the witness is not to make a determination about whether someone is guilty or innocent or what should happen. That's the jury's job. That's the judge's job. The job of the witness is to open his or her mouth and to say, this is the truth. That was John's calling. Sent by God, a human being, a man, sent to be a witness. To say what is true about Jesus, the Messiah. If you're a Christian, that's your job description. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's not your job to convince anyone. It's not your job to play judge, jury, and executioner for anyone. It's your job as a follower of Jesus to understand that you have been sent to be a witness, to open your mouth and to say, this is what's true about God, about the world, about Jesus, about how you can have a relationship with that God. These things are true. John was a witness. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have that same calling. Lastly, John encouraged people to believe, to believe in Jesus' name. The end of verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. All might believe. You say I thought John preached repentance. I thought that's what he was mostly about is repentance and turning from your sin. It's true. He talked a lot about repentance. A lot. And he demanded, if you're going to respond to this message, you've got to repent. But John understood that if you truly repent, if you truly turn from yourself and your sin, you must turn to Jesus in faith. The two go together. The two cannot be separated. It is impossible for you to turn in faith to Jesus without first turning from your sin. You say, I thought John was mostly about baptism. I thought he just wanted people to line up and get dunked. He did call people to be baptized. But John understood that you can get baptized all day long. I mean, we can go up and down, up and down, up and down as many times as you want to go. We can do it in the Jordan River. We can do it in the Dead Sea. We can do it in the Red Sea, wherever you want to go. If you haven't repented and truly believed in the Messiah, it's worthless. It's just ritual. It's just a bath. John was sent by God, a human being, to be a witness to the truth so that people would believe the truth about Jesus. You put all those pieces together, you realize John's life really had nothing to do with John. I mean, we, we talk about him, and I, put, I mentioned him earlier and said, he's this great Bible hero. Jesus said, none has been greater in the kingdom of heaven than John. And we, we say, oh, John, I'd love to meet John. What a great man, what a great hero. And if John could hear that, he would just cringe. Uh, he would just groan. And he would say, it's not about me. I don't deserve to be on the hero board. None of it was about me. It was about Jesus. And John, the author of the gospel, gives us hints about that. He paints this picture of the eternal word, and then he says, now let me tell you about a man. Not even a man who came on his own. A man who was sent by somebody else. He just came because God sent him. That's the only reason. And he was a witness. He was not the light. John the Baptist wasn't the light. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about accolades for himself or attention for himself. It was about pointing people to Jesus. He encouraged people to believe in Jesus, a man who was sent, a man who was a witness. So, if you understand that, you understand that God sent him, you understand that God sent him to speak the truth. Your mind immediately goes to well, what did he say? What was he about? What is this message that he was sent with that is so important? And I just want to to give you a few thoughts about the gospel from this middle section of the prologue. What do we learn about the gospel? John, he's important. We want to know who he is. But more important is the message he preached, the Messiah that he pointed to. What do we learn here about the gospel? Number one, the gospel is a story of sin and rejection. Story of sin and rejection. Verse 10 and 11. It's talking about the light, and it says, The light was in the world, and the world was made through him, through the light, through the word. Yet the world did not know him. And he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The Bible explains this very early in the storyline, the third chapter of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. It talks about Adam and Eve making the decision, rather than to listen to the Lord, to follow the Lord, to obey the Lord, to trust the Lord, to chart their own path, follow their own road. And in that decision, they plunge humanity into darkness and into sin And all of humanity becomes enemies with the Lord. Ever since that moment in Genesis 3, all the way up through the story of the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, up to 2018 in Odessa, Texas, 2019 in Odessa, Texas, human beings have been rejecting and ignoring God in the world that He created. We reject Him and we ignore Him. The Old Testament says that we look at creation and we know that there's a creator. We see the, the, the work of his hands, the work of his fingers, his glory's written in the sky, and we just ignore it. And we reject it. And we make the same decision that Adam and Eve made in the beginning to go our own way and to do our own thing. And in this early part of the Gospel of John, John has described it as darkness. He said, the light came, but... He's implying that we are lost in darkness. He talks about the life coming. This life has come. We don't have it. We're dead. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. All of that condition gets summed up in Romans chapter 3 when Paul writes these words. What are we like apart from God's grace? Well, this is it. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God. Before their eyes. That's you and me. Apart from God's grace. You say, that's not very flattering. It's not. You say, that's not very encouraging. It's not. But it's reality. It's what the Bible describes fallen humanity to be. None righteous. Not a single one. No one seeking God. Everyone full of violence and cursing and bitterness and ugliness and no one fearing the Lord. That's us. And if you don't get how bad our condition is as sinful human beings, you'll never be able to understand the gospel. You'll look at the gospel and you'll say, well, you know, that's sort of a churchy thing. and I guess that's the thing you do so you can go to heaven when you die. You don't want to go to hell. Nobody wants to go to hell, so you, you, know, you do this stuff. If you don't get how bad our condition is, you never see the gospel as truly good news. You just see it as, you know, isn't that, isn't that for women and children? Isn't that Sunday school stuff? Isn't that, you know, you go, you do the little craft, you go to VBS, uh, you know, maybe you go to youth camp when you're growing up. It's just kind of childish stuff, right? We want our children to learn that stuff, but eh, you know, what impact does that have on my life now? If you don't get this, you never understand the gospel. And right from the beginning, John chapter 1, the gospel according to John, he wants us to understand, before we get to all the good news, just how bad our condition really is. It's a story about sin and rejection. And it's so ugly, John points out, that when God did something about it and he sent Jesus, sent Jesus to save us, to give us light, to give us life. We rejected him too. He went to his very own people, and they wanted absolutely nothing to do with him. It's not surprising. That same story's been playing out ever since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We don't want anything to do with you, God. We'll do it on our own. Played out in Eden. It played out when Jesus came. It plays out in human hearts every single day All over the world. A story of sin and rejection. Secondly, it's a story. The gospel is a story about the creator entering creation. We're going to talk about this a lot next week. This is a great mystery. In verse 9, we read this. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Light was invading darkness. The creator was entering creation. The infinite was taking on the finite without ceasing to be infinite. And just to get one verse ahead, verse 14 sums it all up. It says, the Word, the eternal, co-equal with the Father, all creating Word became flesh. And He dwelt among us. He lived among us. The Creator entered creation it's an amazing miracle it's an amazing mystery that the one who had been rejected by his creatures didn't just wad it all up like a ball of trash and throw it away but he humbled himself to the point of becoming one of his creatures taking human form becoming a man so that he could redeem those who had rejected him And those who had sinned against him. It's a story of sin and rejection. It's a story of the creator entering creation. Number three, it's a story of God adopting his enemies. God actually adopts his enemies into his family. This is a new wrinkle. We're early in John, but here's a new idea already. We've already been talking about light and darkness. We're lost in the darkness, and the light has come. We've talked about life and death. We're dead in our sins, and Jesus has come. The Word has come to give us life. Now John says, if you will receive Jesus, if you will believe in His name, you will have the right to become God's children. You get to be adopted into His family. Apart from that life-altering decision... You're his enemy. By nature and by deed, you are God's enemy, his adversary. You stand in opposition to him. And God in his grace is willing to adopt people into his family. He's willing to take his enemies and make them children. That's really good news for you. And it's really good news for me. When you understand the horror of just how bad our condition is, this story of sin and rejection, and you understand that God in his grace is willing to adopt us, his enemies, into his family, it's really, really good news. Just a few thoughts about why it's it's a good thing to be adopted into God's family. Number one, God's children have a home. This is not on your notes, but I'll just put some of these verses on the screen. If you're a child of God, you have a home. Jesus said this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it wasn't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Of course not. If I go and prepare a place, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. The gospel says that apart from Jesus, you're homeless. You're fatherless. And the good news of the gospel is that God will adopt you into his family and give you a home, give you a place to belong. You have a home. Secondly, you have a provider. A provider. Matthew chapter 6 says, Don't be anxious, saying, What are we going to eat? And what are we going to drink? And what are we going to wear? The Gentiles seek after all those things. Your father knows that you need them all. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be afraid. Your father knows exactly. What you need. He will provide for you. As a child of the Father, you have a home. And you have a provider. And thirdly, you have an inheritance. An inheritance. Paul says, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. You have a Father now. You're His child. He's your Father. And He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Left to ourselves, we're lost in darkness. We're dead in our sins. We're enemies of God. And John, in this prologue, is saying, you can be brought into God's family. You're his enemy, but he'll adopt you as his own child. Not because of what you've done, but because of what the Word has done, what the light has done, what the life of men has done. And you're going to have a home. And you're going to have a provider. And you're going to have an inheritance." One last thought is this. The gospel is a story about new birth that comes from God. New birth that comes from God. I want you to notice the contrast in verse 11 to 12. Maybe the most fascinating part of the whole prologue. John 11 says this. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They did not receive him. He came to save these people. They didn't receive Him. They didn't believe in His name. The very next verse says this, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. These did not receive Him. These did receive Him. How do you explain the difference? We're all sinners. We're all fallen. We all inherit a a sinful nature from Adam. It's not that some got a pass on that. We're all born with that sinful nature. The Bible says that we all sin, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul made it abundantly clear in Romans chapter 3, there is not anyone good. There's not anyone righteous, not a single person. No one is seeking God. No one is looking for Him. How do you explain that there are some who reject Him and do not receive Him and there are some who receive Him? You may be tempted to say, well, I guess... I guess some of them just made the right call. They just made the right decision. You know, they flipped the spiritual coin and it came up the right way and there you go. I don't think that's how Paul describes our condition in Romans chapter 3 as we read it earlier. He says there's not anyone righteous. There's not anyone seeking God. There's not anyone who does good and makes the right call. None. Not a single one. I don't think that's how John has described our condition here. He's described us as being lost in darkness. He's described us as being dead in sins. He's described us as being enemies of God. What makes the difference? The difference is explained in verse 13. When John, the the apostle, the author of this gospel, says this These children were born not of blood, it's not DNA. It's not your lineage, your ancestry, DNA kit, your family line, who your parents were. It is not that. It is not of blood. He says, it was also not of the will of the flesh or the will of man. I think those are parallel phrases to say, this wasn't your doing. You didn't muster this up on your own. This is not a result of your spiritual or moral effort of any kind. This new birth, John says, it's not of blood, it's not of the will of the flesh, it's not of the will of man, it's something that God does. It's a miracle, and only God can do it. Only God has the ability to take people lost in darkness and to bring them into the light. Only God has the ability to take people who are dead in their sins and give them life, eternal life. Only God has the ability to look at his enemies, people who stand in opposition and defiance to him and adopt them into his family. John says, how does this new birth take place? God does it. You hear that, I hear that, and you say, how do I know if he's done it in my life? If I can't do it myself, how do I know that God has done it in my life? And the answer is very simple, very simple. Have you made the life-changing decision to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus? Yes or no? If you have done that, it's not that you were smarter than the person sitting next to you. It's not that you were more spiritual than your unbelieving neighbor. It's that God has done a work in your life. And the result is you made the life-altering decision to follow Jesus of Nazareth. It's not just eternity changing. It's life-changing now. John puts it like this. He swings the gospel gate wide open in verse 12. And he says, To all who received him, if you will receive him, to all who believed in his name, if you will believe in his name, you will have the right, literally the prerogative, the privilege, the standing to become children of God. That is most certainly eternity altering but it is also life-altering. I'm going to ask you to bow, and we're going to pray.